Hey listeners, Becky here. On August 25th, 2023, we were invited by Fan Expo Canada to come do a live podcast. And so, of course, we did. The year is 1993, something we haven't talked about yet, but we kind of wanted to get into. And our guest of the day is Anthony Oliveira, and I'm joined, of course, by Cam Maitland. And we are talking about Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, and Demolition Man. We had a great time, and I hope you do too. This is a fun one. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the last of my official voice you will be hearing today, because this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. Now, a lot can happen in a year, and for this podcast, we look at the historical context behind the movies. Now, I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm going to be joined by Anthony Oliveira. Oh, hey, that's me. Hello. That's you. (laughs) He is a... Uh, Yeah, you should clap for that. (laughs) Uh, PhD, culture critic, and dumpster raccoon. If you are not familiar with his series at The Review, it is so much fun. People dress up. Uh, It is a wild time. It is. It is a real disaster in the West End. Very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the far right to me is Cameron Maitland, a Hollywood Suites Hello. film and content specialist. Nobody dresses up for me. <laughs> now, we don't have a ton of time today, so I am literally setting a timer to make sure that we will be vacating the stage appropriately, because you could go on a real deep dive for these films. Uh, if you have not heard our show, of course, it is all about the history of film. So let's get to it. All right. Big Bads in the Big City is our theme for today. And we're going to look at two movies from 1993 where hulking crime fighters with distinct voices patrol metropolises in the middle of crime waves. Now, you can learn a lot about how a decade-old character evolves to stay relevant, and Batman has come to us in many iterations, which says a lot about the time he and we are in. The first movie serials in 1943 feature a Batman who works as a government spook, taking down a Japanese spy named Prince Tito, Dr. Daka, played by a white actor in yellowface. Now, although that aspect didn't endure, that version gave us Alfred as the slender and sassy confidant. Uh, Beforehand in the comics, he was portly and bumbling. And it also gave us the Batcave and the grandfather clock that is the secret entrance. Now, how we got from there and what makes a relevant Bruce Wayne and Batman of our times is what we're going to try to tackle today in 20 minutes. And it's also possibly about one of the best Batman movies ever made. I'm not going to put disclaimers on it. It's my personal opinion, (laughs) Mask of the Phantasm. Now, before we get into that, Anthony, you picked this movie, and I was like, Sure did. Uh, (laughs) If people have not seen it, has everybody seen this film? Yes? Okay. So for those at home who may not have heard it, can you just give us a very brief plot summary here? Oh, gosh. Um, Yeah, uh, the greatest Batman movie ever made, possibly the greatest movie ever made. (laughs) Uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm is, comes out of the Bruce Timm animated universe. Um, and it is the feature-length story of... It's basically Batman in a noir story. just happens to be wearing tights. Um, someone is bumping off mob bosses in Gotham City, and he looks like a spooky Grim Reaper guy. And Batman is trying to get to the bottom of who this is. Meanwhile, he is uh, recollecting the one time in his life he was almost happy and the woman that broke his heart. Um, 
So that's Mask of the Phantasm. It is one of my favorite movies. And thank you so much for talking about it. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and talking about it. And I can tell from the glee in your voice, it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, let's talk about uh, Batman in general. So it's a long way from the 30s up until uh, 1993 when we're talking about this film. We're not going to go beyond that too much because obviously there's a lot more we could get into. But let's talk about, about the uh, evolution of Batman. How did we get to this gritty version from Adam West running around like a maniac? with a bomb. Oh, gosh. Is that for me? Is that That's my... for you, Gil. Oh, God. Uh, well, we're at, like, nerdy capital right now, so if I get any of this wrong, just rush the stage, punch <laughs> me in the head, and steal the microphone. Um, <laughs> Batman's created by Bill Finger and, to a much lesser and complicated extent, Bob Kane, uh, in 1939, <laughs> and he's really a response to... Uh, a fusion of a few elements that were sort of popping off in the culture at that moment. Certainly, like, noir is one of them. Like, uh, the, the, the films that were being made in that time, these sort of gritty, influenced themselves by kind of German expressionist stuff. And then you kind of splice in, as that sort of popularizes, the kind of Dick Tracy comics that are going off for the kids. The Shadow. Don't forget yeah, The Shadow. and The My Shadow is... Favorite. To the point where some people would suggest the first Batman story is actually heavily plagiarized <laughs> from the shadow. Yeah, a um, little bit. Yeah, so it's like these pulp uh, figures dealing with mobsters and crime, but increasingly moving into a superhero genre. And once Superman enters the zeitgeist, they're like, well, what if you just slam these two concepts together? And that's basically how you get the early issues, the early stories of Batman. And they are in their inception, actually already very gritty um, and very dark stories. The first Joker story is like not that different from this. Someone is bumping off mobsters and everyone's trying to figure out who he is and why he wears this chalk white face and everything. Um, as that concept starts to age over the next 20 years, it and the fact that it is pitched at kids, it does get a little bit more camp. And when you get to the 60s in this kind of mod era, that's when you really get the... In the comics, Batman's fighting like aliens and stuff. And then on TV, Batman is Adam West and Robin is Burt Ward. And it becomes about these kind of zany adventures, but still populated by this incredibly colorful rogues gallery that's very like Dick Tracy-esque, where there's like radically disfigured and like pop artists really is what Batman's rogues gallery are, right? Like you watch Bask Mask the Phantom, you're like, what is the Joker's budget for his, like, <laughs> for his yeah. scheme in this? Um, and then the last piece of that is in the 80s, Frank Miller does Dark Knight Returns, which is this return to grittiness. Actually not that different from Demolition Man, like this kind of vigilante in the future who starts kicking ass and cleaning up the city. And that produces the 90s grimdark era that directly feeds the 89 and 92 films by Tim Burton, which pick up that sort of original vein of German expressionism and the sort of like over design of the noir era and just kicks it up with this like 90s goth culture. I love that they call it dark deco. Yes. It's apparently the yeah. design for it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because there's kind of the two streams with the animated series. Because like you say, th this is a franchise that every version of it is attempting to be a gritty reboot of the previous <laughs> version. And the cartoons were the same. Where you had like Super Friends was kind of the last Batman animated. So this is now trying to be this noir and I'm doing a different design aesthetic because it's kind of, uh, you know, 1940s 
Yeah, well, it's the, the you don't know when it's Superman, set. Yeah. yeah, they're totally inspired by that, and it's it's kind of its own unique thing. And they also were really trying to create like an animated drama, which is a bit odd too. It's a weird departure where the people from the animated series come from. Uh, there's a whole thing I'm not going to get into where um, Michael Eisner, who if you listen to our podcast, you will know is one of the pettiest human beings alive, <laughs> got into a fight with uh, some of the people at Fox Kids because they were hosting the original Disney Afternoon, so DuckTales and all that kind of thing. They decided they wanted to buy their own channel, stream Disney Afternoon, and Fox was like, well, then we're going to go to your biggest competitor at the time, Warner Brothers, and have them create an entire slate for us, which is where you get Tiny Toons, and it's where you get Batman the Animated Series because they had the rights to that. And they were like, sure, we'll make this incredible gritty drama. So they get two guys from Tiny Toons mm -hmm. to come and put together this pitch pilot. And if you have not seen the pitch, it is absolutely incredible. It's literally 30 seconds of uh, just these villains in this very stylized sort of world as we would come to know Batman the Animated Series to be. Uh, and they are trying to rob these jewels. Then Batman comes in and the music swells and you're just like, give me 65 episodes of this within a year and a half. Go. And that's what happened to them. And uh, It's like we were just talking about the sort of fusion element. I mean, it's really the 30s and 40s Fleischer Superman cartoons. Yeah. Plus this kind of extreme um, gothist, like it's literally when they call it dark deco, they literally start at the animation level with a black page. It's not animated on white. It's animated on black and everything is then added to it. So it produces these incredibly um, visually distinct silhouettes. That opening pilot is actually largely feeds into the opening credits of the show, which are wordless and almost faceless we get one shot of batman's eyes narrowing before he starts kicking ass um i i'm i grew up obsessed with this cartoon and this era too like not just the ones you mentioned but like animaniacs like my weird i think my personality is 90 percent influenced by animaniacs <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny you bring up the Warner Brothers thing because we actually have a whole episode of this on our podcast uh, talking about uh, the film Cats Don't Dance, which is uh, super fun. Uh, choreography by Gene Kelly. It's one of the last films he did. That's uh, all animated. Cats, old Hollywood, super fun, evil butlers. Um, but one of the things you need to know is that Warner Brothers at the time, because this is like the golden age of Disney's renaissance. So like they're winning Oscars for Beauty and the Beast. They're making a a animation like a mainstream and not just mainstream, but prestige. Like people want not only bring their kids to this, but it, this is a very cool thing to do and to be a part of. And so Warner Brothers wants a piece of this. And Warner Brothers initially approaches it as you should to be a competitor to Disney is we're not going to directly compete with you. We're, we already have our brand, Warner Brothers. We are Looney Tunes. We are zany. Uh, there's this amazing speech Brad Bird does. If everyone is familiar with Brad Bird uh, behind The Incredibles, behind a couple Mission Impossible movies, you know, he does action very well. He's got this incredible speech where he's just yelling, um, we are not Disney. We are crazy. We are big. We are loud. We are Looney Tunes. We are Warner Brothers. And there's so much more we can get away with here. So they make the Iron Giant. They make Cats Don't Dance. They make Batman Mask of the Phantasm. And then they proceed to not market it at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and all of these movies just fall completely through the cracks, with the exception of people who watch them on, like, Fox Kids, and mm. they, they have this huge, uh, this huge passion for them. And so what happens with Mask of the Phantasm is they have this 65-episode order, and then they get a phone call that says, hey, we're thinking about doing like a direct-to-video movie. Uh, and then what happens, Anthony? 
Uh, and then it's amazing. And they, <laughs> and they quickly order it to be uh, in cinemas. But it really does, to be honest, be, as much as I love this film and I think it's an amazingly constructed script, it does feel like a, a blown up episode of the TV show. Like it never feels like more than that. And that's kind of its virtue too. It's like willing to take time developing Batman's character in these really interesting ways. Um, which I think is both the thing people faulted for and the thing I love most about it is how willing it is to sort of slow roast this character study of Bruce Wayne. But is this, am I wrong? Like I've seen many a Batman movie. I cannot say I've seen all of them. Um, But this is one of the very few that directly focuses on Bruce Wayne and not just as an origin story, just as like a deeply troubled human being, but in a different way. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that uh, especially, I think that, it would be more correct to say that the first four movies are basically should be called the Joker, Catwoman, yeah. the Riddler, and maybe like Mr. Freeze. Like it's not <laughs> like Burton was explicit about preferring the villains anyway. Um, and I think that one of the reasons this film works as well as it does is it's actually interested in like what a weird screwed up person you have to be to dress up like a bat. And I like that there is this film more than any other. It has my favorite Batman scene maybe ever. The scene where he's in the graveyard pleading with his pain. He's like, I'll give money to the cops. Like, I'll do whatever it takes. We Just have like, it. Shall we oh, see it? Oh, my gosh. I would love to see that. It doesn't mean I don't care anymore. I don't want to let you down, honest. But just doesn't hurt so bad anymore. You can understand that, can't you? Look, I can give money to the city. They can hire more cops. Let someone else take the risk. It's different now. Please. I need it to be different now. I know I made a promise, but I didn't see this coming. I didn't count on being happy. The kind of animation kids love. Uh, but no, I mean, that's an amazing scene. Uh, it's, I think I'm tearing up. Oh, <laughs> uh, apparently the voice director had to excuse herself for two minutes and cry when they recorded it. And, and Kevin Conroy, the voice, says that he like was specifically thinking about his father, who was an alcoholic, and he left home at 17. So it's like, yeah, very intense. It seemed like uh, he really thought that this movie helped him make the role better because it was leading him through all those emotions as well. Yeah, I, I mean, in the same way that I think Mask of the Phantasm is the best Batman movie, I think maybe indisputably Kevin Conroy is the best Batman. Like, sure. dis- <laughs> like I think that that's... I think that's kind of... Und- yeah, I think that's indisputable. Like, he... His ability to oscillate between even just the simple differentiation of Bruce Wayne and Batman, like this show, in a way that kind of, I think, in the discourse has kind of flattened it out, but like it's very clear in this show that Bruce Wayne is just the Bruce Wayne we think of as the popular figure who's just like gallivanting around town and hosting these parties where these girls are dancing on the piano. That's the mask. And the real guy is the guy who's down in the basement, who's got the growly voice. (laughs) (laughs) Whose best friend is a snappy butler. Yeah. (laughs) And I think the reason, one of the reasons Conroy's Batman is the best Batman is because Conroy, this is something that he only came out in 2016, but that 
his Batman is informed by his own experience for decades in the closet that um, when his Batman speaks, it's informed by an actor who knows what it's like to have to keep things on the surface and keep things light when you're in public and has to bury everything else and like is pr- producing these performances informed by that trauma. But as soon as he's done, he has to go back to being in disguise, right? Um, in 2016 or 2022, he produced a really amazing comic for the DC Pride anthology called Finding Batman, where he talks about what Cam was just saying, mm-hmm. just like how this character is so suffused with the experience of the closet. Um, a really amazing talent. We lost him in November of 2022 and just like an unbelievable loss. Really, truly decades of the best Batman ever. Well, and his run was so long, which is, it's great that we have this whole thing, but it's also, he's playing against uh, unbelievable other voice actors who are bringing the same pathos, the same energy. They're all, I mean, Mark Hamill is the Joker, is up there with a character who is, I mean, think about all the people you've seen walking around today dressed as various iterations (laughs) of the Joker. Um, I think you can definitely put Mark Hamill's up there as finding that perfect blend of grounded, terrifying, unhinged, don't what he's doing, don't know what he's going to do next, but you get it. Yeah. And I think also his, his Joker also has these weird two voices, right? Like there's that great scene in this film where he's, um, the mobster has come begging him to help them find out who the phantasm is because it's bumping off all these Italian dudes. <laughs> and, and he's scared to death of the Joker. And it's funny because the cartoon uses the movie version where the Joker is also a mobster in his origin story. So he's linked into this, this, these murders. Uh, and the mobster's like, he's, he's coming for you too. You're just as dirty as me, if not dirtier. And you see the like happy-go-lucky clown that's been making some very funny jokes throughout the scene just like fall away and it drops into that second voice that Hamill uses for just a moment and then he pulls it back up. It's really astonishing work in this movie. I have a fun fact about where he got that voice. He said it was from a performance of Amadeus. That that crazy laugh was him being Amadeus because apparently Amadeus had a very annoying laugh. (laughs) That's wild. uh, Yeah, I love that. It's uh, so so interesting because he really thought he wanted a role, but he was very uh, afraid of the Joker. He thought it was kind of too big shoes to fill. But well, I guess he just nailed I think it. He, he's talked about it too. He's also very aware of himself as a role model as Luke Skywalker. Sure. Mm-hmm. And Luke, Luke Skywalker is the ultimate good, and the Joker is the ultimate, you know, chaotic bad. Like he's, you're playing literally two sides of the same coin. But I think the voice acting lets him sort of escape some of that, right? Like, yeah. unless someone was like, that's Mark Hamill, you'd be like, no, it's not. It's yeah. just, uh, you know, it's a voice actor. And it's, yeah, it's Mark Hamill, the voice actor. And what's actually really amazing is he was a fill-in on this show. That This show had already made episodes with Tim Curry as mm. the voice of the Joker. And the directors were like, actually, this isn't working. He's just playing just sinister. Curry may have had some health issues around the time. So Hamill, in his first few Joker episodes, is not only delivering that amazing performance, but he has to deliver it in time with Curry's because they'd already animated it. So it's this wild... To, to, to have been Luke Skywalker... Like, Mark Hamill would be famous just for this if it hadn't been for Skywalker. Like, it's wild to have this, like 
complete second blossoming. Apparently, he was just like a dynamo in the recording studios too. Most you're a voice actor; you can speak to this. Like usually, you're sitting down. Hamill would not even sit. He oh would, no, you are not sitting down. When you are watching videos <laughs> of celebrities voice act, you are not watching voice actors. I will say that. <laughs> right? It's by the end of something like The Joker, by the end of something that's this high energy, you are sweating. You are exhausted. You need to go have a very big glass of wine and like a shot of Red Bull at the same time. You are tired, and there's a reason these sessions are only four hours because you are tired and your voice is dead and then you need to go take a rest and just break for the rest of it. And when you watch footage of him doing it, you're like, you're not holding back. You aren't Mm -hmm. just using your voice. It is your whole body because you have to inform the role with all of you. You are filling in the blanks. You are more often than not, not in the case of Hamill at that time, but you are telling the animator what to draw. Apparently they asked for the footage of him performing because they wanted to be able to see what he had been doing that produced these sounds. Um, I think it's also worth giving a shout out to Dana Delaney, who plays Andrea Beaumont in this. Um, Andrea Beaumont, only if you're a super fan, you know that character recurs one more time on the show. But otherwise, this is her only appearance. Uh, Delaney, probably most famous in the Bruce Timm universe for voicing Lois Lane. And she has that kind of amazing um, His Girl Friday kind of energy in this film throughout. Like You can see... It does so much that she pops off against Kevin Conroy so well. Like, she can deliver those one-liners. You really believe she can, like, flip him over. When the reveal comes at the end, you're like, of course. Like, who else has enough charisma to pull this off? But can we also talk about that it's Stacey Keach? Oh, yeah. I I was going to say, shout out to, like, Abe Vigoda's real emphysema (laughs) as well, which plays a great role as the weird wheezing gangster. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's stuff that you would think would be stunt casting, but there's so much care and so much attention and so much love in this film to get it right. Yeah. And it's an era where it was pretty new. Like, Jonathan Taylor Thomas in Lion King was was kind of unusual. So I think that a lot of people took these roles. And a lot of great character actors throughout the animated series. But it's also understanding that networks and studios didn't actually understand animation. You have a bunch of people who are not animators in charge. And if you want to know more about this, we don't have time today. Um, But it's incredible listening to, like, Steven Spielberg showing up with American Tale and being like, okay, so I don't like this. Let's just cut this, redo this. And they're like, that's six months of work. And he's like, oh, that's like three days for me when I'm shooting one of my films. So even Spielberg didn't totally understand the process. When uh, Eisner and Katzenberg showed up and took over Disney, uh, they looked at the Black Cauldron and were like, well, this all has to go. Oh, there's our timer. We're switching. Oh, Oh, boy. (laughs) I know. It's so quick. I'll just finish quick. They said this all has to go. And once again, had it explained to them that it can't just go like you're talking about a year, two, three years worth of development. I think so. we're seeing that conversation again around some of the Spider-Verse stuff, like oh, the yeah. Lord and Miller stuff. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, unfortunately, we have to transition because I know we could talk about this. <sighs> go watch Mask of the Phantom. Has anyone not seen it? Everyone in this room. Oh, there's oh, a few uh, hands. Oh, you go. have to watch right. it. It's, it's it. a lot of fun. I'm actually. not kidding. The best Batman movie ever made. <laughs> there we go. Glowing review. And uh, <laughs> he is available on Instagram and Twitter if you want to yell at him about that later. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into Demolition Man. So comparatively speaking, Batman doesn't cause a lot of collateral damage. 
Sure, he blows up a few walls every now and then, or maybe causes an unexpected chopper to crash into a skyscraper. It's nothing too wild. But our next movie is literally named Demolition Man after the amount of unintentional chaos our hero will inflict in his effort to bring his 20th century criminal nemesis to justice in his city of the future, while telling us a whole lot about 1993 in the process. <laughs> now, has everyone seen Demolition Man here? We got show of hands. Yes, few, uh, yeah, few okay. Demolition Man yeah, people. It's about right. 50 50. That's well, Cam, why don't you give us a brief plot summary on this one? I what? believe this one is available on Hollywood Suite. Is that correct? I, if it not at the moment, it will be soon. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously, looking at this crowd, though, they're big fans of the musician Sting, whose song inspired this. How right? dare they not have the Grace Jones version? <laughs> I know. Uh, Demolition Man is uh, set in the far future of 1996, <laughs> uh, where uh, two, uh, there, there's an evil criminal terrorist... Simon Phoenix, played by Wesley Snipes. Uh, he has taken over part of Los Angeles, and the only man who can stop him is John Spartan, played by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, in catching him, there is an explosion. Uh, Spartan is framed uh, for uh, killing a bunch of people, and they're both put into cryo prison. Uh, <laughs> like you do. Yeah, and like you do. Like, like we all knew started in 1996, cryo prison. Right, right. No more death penalty, just cryo. Um, they're thought out at an inexplicably short 36 years <laughs> later, uh, where society has somehow changed entirely. Uh, it, there is no longer any violence. There is no longer swearing. Uh, it is corporatized. It's a utopia. But as with any movie, is it really? Uh, and of course, Simon Phoenix, uh, being in this, uh, this psycho in a, a nonviolent society, they need to unthaw another psycho. Uh, John Spartan to try to stop him. Uh, so it's a real fish out of water kind of sci-fi comedy action movie. It's R-rated, so there's a lot of swears. There's a little virtual reality sex. Uh, but you know, it, this is an R. This is an R-rated. Oh yeah, there's a lot of F-words. The the F-word the F-word jokes in this are the funniest oh, yeah. jokes ever. So it's like a far-flung future that's like this Huxley-esque. One of the characters is literally named Lenina Huxley. Um, but every time someone swears. A wall out of the wall shoots out a ticket, like a hundred dollar ticket for swearing, and it never stops. Like yeah. it gets funnier and movie. funnier as the movie goes. It does <laughs> the good comedy thing where it's like very funny and then not funny and then extremely yeah. funny again. It's that beautiful rule of threes. It never misses the ding of the ticket. Like no, it gets more it, and more distant. More background. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But it's always there. It's, but you're it's also very forgetting the Stallone nudity, which was a very big part of the promotions sure. of this film because the ladies and the gentlemen love nude Stallone. Uh, Stallone loves nude Stallone. <laughs> he sure and apparently does. he purposefully got, you know, because obviously there's a weird uh, model of him nude, uh, frozen. Uh, he got many of those made specifically to send to Planet Hollywood around oh, the world. That's so it's I would, I would use one as a coffee table. Yeah. That's great. They <laughs> come up for auction now and again uh, for the Stallone heads out there. And he looks great. Congratulations to him. He's very hot in this. No, I know he's like, is he like a right wing maniac now? I don't know. But uh, like, yeah, I think he's an old fashioned right wing maniac. Right. If that makes, uh, but I mean, also Benjamin Brad is really stealing scenes. I got oh, so you have quick, to choose your snack. I have a nude Stallone clip that I would like to play oh, yeah. for a moment. <laughs> but I find as soon as you take your clothes off, all the guys begin to look for UFOs. They're going. <sighs> No one looks at your face anymore. It's like, yeah, okay, beautiful, uh-huh. You know, you know what I mean? It's really, it's that kind of thing. So you're running around naked and everyone is looking for flying saucers. You know what I'm saying? Well, here, 
Here comes a UFO right now. Hi. She's very cute. I never got to see him make it. I was banned from the set that day. Well, excuse me. Stick around because it's getting hot in here. We, like, we have a surprise guest appearance. <laughs> uh, I'm Buster Brown, and this is my dog, Tide. I live in a shoe, so does she. Hi. She is amazing. Story. How are you doing? I'm finished. I know you are. I'm better than you are today. You speak faster, but I speak more I intelligently. Think... You know, I give them more insight. <laughs> He's evil. And I also sink her laurels. You know that. You but sink my laurels. I sink. <laughs> I think I you sink my laurels. Actually, I stink your laurels. You stink my laurels. You stink but, like laurels. Yeah. Like, you know what? <laughs> she's so like winning in yeah. this. Like she's so charming. Is this? This was like her big break, right? Uh, no, she was actually given a Razzie for this role. Oh yeah, but. Listen, it's 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 <laughs> a very fascinating story. Uh, the role was originally cast as Lori Petty. Uh, Crazy. They, they filmed. Yeah, Tank it, it, it seems odd. Familiar with that name. Uh, they filmed the like sex scene a few days actually with her. A uh, lot of differing stories. Uh, Joel Silver's kind of mean about it. Lori Petty says she just didn't have chemistry with, with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, but so then it ends up being Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock had been, you know, in Love Potion number nine. She obviously was Tess McGill on the terrible Working Girl TV show. Oh uh, wow! But right. uh, she got the role not because she's so she is great. She truly makes it. Everyone agrees she makes it. She got the role because she was already under contract for a film called Wrestling Ernest Hemingway, and she was the same size as Lori Petty. <laughs> All it was was go through our actresses and see who we don't have to pay any money to redo the clothes. And apparently in the scene where they go for dinner, her dress actually bursts, and she's kind of walking around <laughs> with her hands on her sides. Because, it, it, yeah, they couldn't afford to uh, change the clothes. So it's, it's almost a fluke, but they're all, everyone involved is delighted. And uh, she really, like, yeah, sold the whole world. Wow. Lori Petty's amazing, but, like, you used Lori Petty for, like, Tank Girl if you're mm. going to do a dystopia. You don't use her for this. She could be the Dennis Leary role, I would yes. say. But not, yeah, you don't want her as a... That would be amazing, actually. They should have made everyone take one step to the left. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Dennis Leary, there's a name you haven't heard recently as a major feature film player. It's um, really his first movie, too. It's, and he's and, great yeah. in it. He's doing himself as hard as he possibly can. I like it. And that's, but that's what he's kind of built to be, is he's there to be this everyman who... Uh, it's The way they have created the future, this is a movie that I feel like the politics exist so beautifully, exactly in the sweet spot of 1993. <laughs> because what you're looking at is the Gulf War ends in 1991. The USR collapses in 1991. So Hollywood has no more enemies. So they're like, all right, what do we have going on? Well, we have the Los Angeles, Los Angeles riots happening in 1992, and crime in the inner city is going to destroy us all. And then uh, Bill Clinton gets elected under this whole wave of uh, political correctness. He's the first Democratic president. He plays his saxophone on television uh, in 16 years. It was 16 years. So this is a very reactionary movie, being like the the uh, politicos are coming to get us all. And yeah. The, yeah. So it's PC culture gone yes. wild. Exactly. The future is gone woke. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so it's watching this film from that point of view being like, oh, this is like a perfect time capsule of what we are terrified is going to happen under Clinton. Yeah, I will say Daniel Waters is also very careful because this is a film that is taken up by a lot of libertarians. Daniel Waters is a screenwriter. He wrote Heather's Batman Returns, etc. He uh, is credited as, as kind of the main writer here, even though he took someone else's draft. Um, he is very concerned that a lot of libertarians love this movie and are like, this is the perfect like argument for libertarianism. And he's like, oh, that speech at the end, he tells Dennis Leary, you've got to clean up your act, too. So it's a very centrist take, too. Of that like bow a, at the end is yeah. so bad. Yeah. 
<laughs> but um, I, I, I think it's really funny too. It's like a good comedy. Yeah. Like, oh, for sure. The seashells joke where he goes to the bathroom and he comes out and he's like, "There's no I toilet paper." That's the clip. Do we? Do you have that clip too? Oh my god! I anticipated it all. <laughs> So he's like freshly defrosted in this scene. Oh, they used handfuls of wadded paper back in the 20s. <laughs> I'm happy that you're happy, but the place where you're supposed to have the toilet paper, you got this little shelf with three seashells on it. <laughs> he doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> I can see how that could be confusing. I don't believe it. Uh, apparently that also had more runners throughout, uh, but they decided the, the last line is basically the seashells. But there was apparently a, a point where before Wesley Snipes and Stallone were meant to fight, uh, Snipes is like, before I kill you, do you ever figure out how to use those seashells? <laughs> Which apparently was a, a scene everybody loved, but it, yeah, it didn't. And, and part of the reason why... They, uh, Daniel Waters is like, I'm reluctant to make a sequel because I'll have to explain the seashells. <laughs> but he has. Like, everyone has pestered him to explain the seashells. The, mm -hmm. Does anyone want to actually know what the seashells mean? Yeah. Yes? Oh okay, God. so the actual writer thing is that he called his buddy because he's like, how yeah. would people go to the bathroom in the future if they do a whole thing? So he called up his buddy who happened to be in the bathroom and answered the phone <laughs> like you do. And he's like, how would this work? He's like, I don't know. I got some seashells on a shelf in my bathroom. Maybe it's that. And he was like, seashells it is. But this is how 90s intense. interior design people. If <laughs> you were not, if you didn't live through it, everyone had those bath beads, those oil yeah. things God, and man. a little basket of seashells. <laughs> and this was him just going, in the future, those seashells will be the most important and like, part. like, the oldest, driest pile of eucalyptus. <laughs> yes. <Just saying. laughs> Potpourri. Um, but, I th but there is also, before the writer came out and made this bold announcement, there are so many fan, fan theories of this, of people who, like, went into detail of, like, it's actually a pincering maneuver. Yeah. So I am, I am not going to get into any more detail than that, but people get very intense about the seashells and mm. the whole thing. Well, the, the button on that scene is my favorite, too, because he starts swearing a bunch, and as the machine is shooting out tickets, he's collecting them, and then he returns to the bathroom with his stack of tickets Beautiful. so he can use them to wipe himself. <laughs> so good. <laughs> this movie is funny. I was amazed rewatching it how delighted I was by this film. Yeah, and we talked a bit in our like kind of preamble uh, talk amongst ourselves that uh, this is the same year as Last Action Hero, and it's kind of interesting because uh, Schwarzenegger's going down and Stallone is coming up, and I think part of the big reason, this is also the same year as Cliffhanger, so he had two massive hits. Uh, but part of the reason is he's coming off a streak of bad comedies with Oscar, which like nobody remembers because it was a massive failure. Great Tim Curry role, just saying. Sure. And and the famously the movie that Schwarzenegger tricked him into oh doing, God. Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. <laughs> he pretended he was going to do it to try to make Stallone take it, and he did. Uh, but this is really proving that Stallone can do comedy, and he knew that like... He, he has some great interviews at the time talking about how he is so typecast as this caveman and no one will give him a realistic role. So instead he leaned into being a completely cartoonish version of himself. It has some good Schwarzenegger jokes in it, yes, too. true. <laughs> Where he like hears that uh, Schwarzenegger as president made the amendments that have led to this like utopian nightmare, right? And it's yes. like, 
is taken aback by the what was it, the 65th Amendment or yeah. something <laughs> yes. allows uh, Schwarzenegger to have become president. Now, okay. you think this is weird, is that, no, 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 there was actually an Arnold Amendment put forward uh, in, <laughs> I believe it was just after he finished his gover- governorship where they were going to put him forward as a presidential nominee. So they created something called the Arnold Amendment. It never ended up passing and going through where it would have been a non-naturalized born citizen would have been able to run for president mm-hmm. specifically for Arnold Schwarzenegger. You laugh. This is a thing. And come to think of it, Jesse Ventura is in this movie yeah. too, as like a, as a like a murderous goon, right? All our great leaders. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into this world of the future because there's a reason some of this looks familiar. Like, why does everyone look like they're out of the 1980s Dune? And the answer is. It's the same costume designer. Why do all the sets look like Mario Brothers? Oh, it's because the same set designer was literally coming off Mario Brothers. And uh, we've got a little bit about that. Cam, you want to bring us? Or, uh, Anthony, no, go ahead. Go for oh, it. I mean, I think we both kind of have the same stuff. It's it's obviously, yeah, uh, Stuart Baird, who uh, did a lot of this, the design. Uh, mine, uh, this is where I'm going to drop my swear. I apologize <laughs> to all young ears in the audience. But uh, yeah, he, he'd, he'd done Blade Runner. Uh, and Joel Silver, the maniac behind Demolition Man, really wanted that. Uh, also working, you know, alongside a lot of directors. But what you need to know is his original proposal, he gave it to Joel Silver. And uh, I, this is quoting Joel Silver. I apologize in advance. He said, for this price, I could build a fucking time machine and send you to the future. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is a great quote. It looks amazing. Like, it like Mario Brothers, which if you haven't watched lately, go watch 1993's Mario Brothers. Um, every bit of this looks like a compelling, believable future. It's tactile. I miss mm. tactile <sighs> futures. Like Barbie. Like it has that kind yeah. of like, oh, like I could live there. And it's not, I mean, literally they were like, what would the car of the future look like? And it's like, well, let's ask GM. And it's like, here's some models of what it could look like. Um, the costumes too, like, you can see actually that the film is really pushing against the the move towards the 2000s era superhero movies. Mm. Like you can tell they're like literally trying to figure out like how do we make textiles that work like that? And after you've done the super rubberized Batman costume of the Burton movies. It's like, well, well what if it was a bit because more... because Bob Ringwood designed both those Batman movies as yeah. well as Batman Forever. And he became like the go-to for uh, X-Men. He was a consultant on all of X-Men. So yeah, he designed... Yeah. He's not responsible for the nipples. I'm going to clear his... <laughs> I love the nipples. I mean, Schumacher <laughs> takes full responsibility and does never back down until the day he died. <laughs> I've written a whole essay about the nipples. Yes. <laughs> you can if you check that out on Aslan. <laughs> if you haven't listened to Joel Schumacher commentary for Batman uh, forever? No, for, yes. Uh, Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin's uh, the one where he's really like... literally yeah. him just apologizing for the entire duration <laughs> of the film. He's he, like, I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry I about this. I feel like this. he took it back. And we're about to get the Schumacher cut of Batman Forever, which is very exciting. Uh, extra footage. A little more Chase Meridian in our I class. Mean, obviously, I'm a fan of Batman <laughs> Forever. But, <laughs> um, I, I love, like, it's not just the, like, uh, military looks in this movie. Like, the civilians kind of it's predicted like health goth aesthetics Mm, like there's a lot of like flowy robes and like it looks so natural in this you kind of forget like this is 1993 like clothes did not look like that back then and similarly like um wesley snipes for his like final boss battle scene has that amazing suit of armor that's made out of different 
tires. Yeah. Like it's just made out of tires. He seems to have called from like the wreckage of the previous battles. It looks so good. It feels kind of like a joke about the Batman suits themselves, but is also like completely believable. Like he falls out of a car and you're like, oh, he's fine. He's dressed in tires. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, while we have a little bit of time, let's talk about it. Let's talk about how amazing Wesley Snipes oh, is in so this. Oh, so good. And that was one that they like went for him really hard. He was a little reluctant. He was also pretty new at the time, even though he was leading a lot of movies in 1993. Uh, my favorite story about Wesley Snipes, uh, he, when you watch this movie now, you're like, I don't know about the optics where it's one black guy yeah, being the yeah. bad guy. But apparently <laughs> Daniel Waters is like, yeah, we felt that way in 1992 as well. We were like, I don't know about these optics. But um, the best things I heard was Wesley Snipes said, like, there's two reasons this movie isn't racist. Uh, Number one, do you see how many white people I kill? Uh, and the dog whistle at the time was all black on black violence. So he really liked that. And he said, uh, number two, do you know how much they're paying me? That's not racist, uh, which I loved. Um, but yeah, he is just doing pure charisma. And, and this is also, again, I think uh, a lot of people don't, don't credit the director much. It's really like a Joel Silver production. But he really cared about iconography and stuff. And he said that like when he was doing fights, he would play the music uh, from New Jack City to be like, I want this to be Nino Brown fighting Rocky. And like, he just kind of played like that, like a real fan fandom kind of, you know, mix them up. And I think that really comes through. Wow. And like also one of the most like low key, one of the most like iconic, like silhouettes in, sure. in like in cinema, like, Dennis Rodman saw this and was like, I'm just going to do that. And it's like very... He did, in fact, do that. Yeah. He, he is deliberately <laughs> says that's who he's trying to be. They called Dennis Rodman also the demolition man because, uh-huh. I mean, he was extremely violent on the court. But also that he had that look. And that's when he started dyeing his hair was when he saw Wesley Snipes do that in Demolition Man. Yeah, like every outfit he wears in this is like like the the romper, the like the, oh, yeah. the, the orange shirt. A real the, Corbin like, Dallas look. Kind <laughs> of. Yes, yeah. very Corbin Dallas. Good call. Uh, well, as we wrap up, because we're just finishing up right now, there's one last thing that this movie is a very important first for, and that is advertising <gasps> localization. Oh, so yeah. good. Now, Cam, do you want me to play the clip first or do you want to talk about it first? Uh, I'll talk about it first. Uh, I work at Hollywood Suite. It's a movie channel. Uh, one of the most interesting problems we have to deal with quite often is Canada is theatrically considered the same as America. But when it comes to distribution to television and digital, we are considered international. So we often receive international cuts of a movie. Shouldn't be a big deal, right? (laughs) Uh, But then somebody literally emails in and says, I think I'm losing my mind watching this uh, version of Demolition Man. Something's very wrong. And do you want to show them, Becky? I will show them what is very wrong. I literally gasped while I was watching this scene last night, and then I had to watch it again three times. And if you guys have ever illegally downloaded it, you've probably seen it like this and gone, what? (laughs) Please, I insist. I would like you to accompany me to Pizza Hut. (laughs) Look forward to it. Thank you. So as you may guess... uh, Taco Bell is not ubiquitous around the world, uh, even around the English-speaking world. So they actually filmed some alternate stuff. They dubbed some stuff. It is all Pizza Hut in every cut except America. So, uh, yeah, very strange because Taco Bell figures so largely uh, in it. truly insane. Like, I thought I was losing my mind, first of all, because I was like, did his mouth move completely differently while he said that? And I was like, I, I must be crazy. And then the next moment, it, the same thing happens to Stallone. And then in, when they go to the like 
the Pizza Hut of the future, yeah. and they're all eating tacos. I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah. And then like it pans past the logo, and it's like some child drew the Pizza Hut <laughs> logo onto the celluloid. <laughs> yeah, you can get a good supercut of all, oops, all Pizza Huts. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's wild. And it doesn't come up very often. The only other thing that ever came up was the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice has like an extra special America only super happy ending. Uh, but otherwise, yeah. Oh, wait, kiss, which is the American? The kiss, is it kiss. The, the kiss is not canon in. Yeah, uh, in, there's in like uh, fireworks too. Oh, it's, it's, it's not bad, but it's, uh, yeah, it's not. Not the rest of the world, baby. Whoa. Not Pizza Hut approved. <laughs> well, also, like, I had never seen this film until recently. And I think what shocked me is how many people still, like, love this movie. And I'm sure part of that is, like, the replaying on TBS. Like, this is, like, a perfect TBS, you mm. know, action movie to, to play later. But there was such a big deal that in 2019 at San Diego Comic-Con for the, uh, it was like the 25th anniversary, they created the Taco Bell of the future where they <laughs> had, like you could go for the food experience. Uh, it was a fine dining molecular gastronomy versions of Taco Bell favorites like the franchise Freedom Fries and the Crunchwrap Supreme Leader. So you could <laughs> enjoy those treats in 2018 at uh, the San Diego Comic-Con. Wow. All right. Final thoughts about these films, gentlemen. Watch them. They're great. <laughs> They're both really... I thought going into Demolition Man this week, I was like, oh, I have to rewatch Demolition Man. And I was like... My boyfriend was like in the kitchen and then I'd, he started doing that dad thing where he like was standing next to the TV watching it <laughs> and then eventually sat down. <laughs> like, it's so good. It's just a tight... It's tight. Both these films are so tightly scripted, which is such a pleasure now that in this moment, as the writer's strike is going on, hopefully we get to see this change. Hopefully this means a golden age is coming. But, like, God, scripts, scripts are the cheapest part of making a movie. <laughs> like, invest in a script. And both these movies show you why. Like, every beat of these, even when it's a stupid punch em up movie that's doing this weird dystopia thing. Like, what if you thought about how every scene connects? What if every bit of dialogue was as sharpened as it could get? And that's the pleasure of watching these two, I think. Uh, also, I'm a stunt person, and this features the only uh, jumping out of a helicopter with a bungee cord scene you have, will ever see because that is the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that is uh, Hollywood Suites, a year in film. Thank you so much. I want to thank Cameron Maitland from Hollywood Suite, film and content specialist. Hey, thank you. And yes, subscribe to Hollywood Suite. I'm contractually obliged to say <laughs> it's on Prime Video and it's on your cable systems. Watch old movies. Uh, also, Anthony Oliveira, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm also going to give Hollywood sweet a shout out because they have sponsored my screening of Bram Stoker's Dracula for Halloween which means we're going to have like a multi-performer cabaret that night join us October 21st it's going to be so much fun you also have a book coming out I do have a book coming out. Uh, if you're here at Fan Expo, you might be more interested in my Captain Marvel comic, which is coming out October 11th, uh, Salt on Eden. She's returning to the Kree Skrull homeworld. Mm. Um, and then uh, Easter 2024, my novel comes out. It's called Dayspring. It is uh, the story of Christ from the point of view of the beloved dis disciple. It is uh, super fun and horny and weird and you should check it out. It's uh, Anthony is a fabulous and complicated man. Like, I, cannot, <laughs> I cannot recommend his work enough. He is on a couple of our episodes. Uh, you have a great hippie musical episode with us for uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell. Oh my God. The stories behind that are amazing. It's Victor Garber like you have never seen before. It's fabulous. Uh, that one was super fun. And then we did uh, a not so fun but very interesting episode with New York, New York and The Turning Point. 
Good. God. And yeah. you guys were really on the pulse of things because they tried to bring New York, New York back on oh, Broadway. Yeah. And, and they learned well. the lesson we yes. learned during that episode uh, where it's like, this story does not work. No, and it's also <laughs> the movie that almost killed Scorsese. So if you want to hear that story, it's uh, quite the tale. And that wraps it up from Fan Expo. So once again, thank you to the good people of Fan Expo for having us out. To Anthony, to Cam, to Chuck, our fabulous audio engineer for the day. And thank you to you for listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>